welcome everyone uh, to uh, this November uh, crucial conversation. Uh, you might remember in July of this past uh, of this year, the session of First Presbyterian Church of Dallas unanimously uh, approved a confessional statement of purpose that uh, unequivocally uh, denounced racism in all of its forms and resolved to partner with leaders in our city that are already engaged in struggles uh, for justice. Uh, and in the spirit of the session statement, we have been hosting uh, this series of crucial conversations on healing justice and racial equity. And we started it all as a way to model uh, brave conversation between real people. Uh, you are at the right place if you believe that God is not done transforming us uh, or transforming the neat little narratives that we use to make sense of the world as we wish that it were not as it is. Uh, between June and November of this year, we have hosted 19 guests, some from here in Dallas and then others from across the country via Zoom. Uh, there have been many hours of conversation. Uh, it's all been viewed by uh, thousands of people, either live or recorded, and this series uh, now extends beyond these Sunday gatherings. Uh, there are small groups of uh, that are led by facilitators supported by our own faith formation staff that have been meeting regularly for their own conversations twice a month based on what they hear here. Uh, what we have learned through uh, both these Sunday conversations and in the small groups is that uh, doing this work, this struggle for justice, confronting racism uh, through honest dialogue and prayer is necessary and slow work uh, that must be sustained even as we act with God's help uh, to transform the world that we're in. So tonight, our guests are three Dallas police officers, Sergeant Jessica Montgomery Criddle, uh, Sergeant Anthony Greer, and Senior Corporal Michael Scott. They are familiar faces to those of you uh, who worshiped with us in the era that we can now call BC or before COVID. Uh, and in addition to their full-time jobs, our guests also serve here on Sundays uh, helping with security here at the church. So welcome, Sergeant Criddle, Sergeant Greer. Corporal Scott will be here in a little while and we'll say welcome to him when he joins. Uh, you all have busy schedules. Uh, I thought my schedule was busy, y'all. Y'all are working uh, three different shifts apparently today, <laughs> one in yeah. uniform and two in uniform and, and one here uh, on this call. So uh, very grateful that you've uh, shared yourself with us uh, and uh, uh, accepted the invitation to be a part of this conversation. Um, so we will uh, get going here and uh, I will uh, uh, direct some of the questions to uh, you all individually. Other times I'll just uh, put it out there and allow uh, you to respond as uh, the spirit moves. Uh, we'll also be getting questions from our participants. Um, there. Uh, they know the, the, the uh, routine by now. Uh, they can use the chat mechanism to post questions and they, they can also uh, use the, the uh, panelist tab uh, to uh, post questions. All right. Uh, well, I'll start with you. All three of you are uh, veterans in the police department and uh, Sergeant Criddle, I'll begin by asking you uh, what motivated you uh, to become an officer? Well, that's a loaded question for me. I'm going to try to give you the Cliff's Notes version of that uh, answer. But for me, I, I actually was studying to be a doctor and um, I was going to be a medical examiner to be exact. 
Um, and in the midst of doing autopsies, I kind of discovered my passion for learning how people lived as opposed to how they died. And in doing that, um, it prompted me to actually get into law enforcement work, which was not, a, it's not very far off because I was dealing, you know, one-on-one -on -one with officers a lot in the cases that I was doing when um, I was working at the medical examiner's office. And um, with that, I just realized that I was more interested, like I said, in learning how people lived as opposed to how they died. And well, you can't do that by doing medical examinations. So um, I joined the police force and I haven't looked back and I don't regret, I don't regret it at all. How long have you been serving? It'd be 16 years. Wow. Uh, how about you, uh, Sergeant Greer? Uh, what motivated you to become an officer? I'll tell you what, I graduated from uh, Law Magnet High School when it was downtown. I've always had an interest in, in law and law enforcement, and I worked as a um, paralegal after I graduated from college in 93, and I guess it was an officer working an off-duty job at the Dallas County Courthouse at the front, and he was working, it was a movie shoot, and he was there for about maybe about three weeks, and I'd pass by him because I'd park across the street in the pay parking and walk across, but he was always standing out front, and, um, and I'd pass by him, and he'd wave, and finally I talked to him, and, and in the first week, and I guess six or seven days thereafter, I'd have a little conversation with him in passing, going to, to the inside the court, but anyway, he was telling me how good the job was, and I'd always had that interest, but, and so uh, he kind of motivated me to, to, to sign on with the program, and and then um, I guess 23 years later, I'm still here. So I guess it's a pretty good job, so. 23 years for you, uh, Sergeant Greer, 16 years for you, uh, Sergeant Criddle. Should, is it Montgomery Criddle or is it Criddle? Which one should I use? Um, no, I was saying Criddle is fine. Montgomery Criddle is a lot to say. So uh -huh. just, I, I can go by Criddle, it's okay. Um, you know, one of the things that I've noticed people uh, like me discussing this year is that uh, there should be a distinction between public safety and law enforcement. Like those are two different things. Um, is that something that you all talk about as well? Well, um, with everything going on, we have been forced to have a lot of conversations. And so, yes, public safety uh, has, it's always on the front runner for us to have conversations about public safety uh, because that's our bread and butter, uh, so to say. Um, it is our main focus and it's, it is our main objective uh, when we look at everything. So um, yes, I, I will say it's a distinction that we have to make in, the, in both, but um, we do have to figure out how to connect the two and figure out how to make the best decisions um, based off of what's best for the general public as well as for the officers. Sergeant Greer, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think we talk about that distinction. Um, just as time has moved forward, even in even the time that I've been on the department, um, we used to receive calls that were more so geared towards law enforcement, but as time moves on and we fast forward on today, uh, some of the calls that you receive 
clearly are in the realm of social work or more like uh, public safety or um, uh, you know some of the issues that that people call 911 for for just not necessarily law enforcement related but that's just uh, the things that we've had to, to adapt and accept in this profession so but yeah if we could just make a distinction between the two and have a somebody that you would call for all these other issues and then here you have for strictly for law enforcement issues just the police and i think that would that would serve well you know we um i, I always see the the three of you in uniform uh whenever i do see you um and i think that's how most people uh, uh you know see police officers when when they are uh when they're out and about and being seen what what do you all do when you're not um serving when you're not on duty i i've got a an 18 year old she's about to graduate um so she's her senior year and it's a, been difficult senior year with her having to she's mostly at home and that's something that she wants to do they have the option of going to school or uh or uh, being at home and doing it online but she wants to do the online thing which is fine so we have that and i've got uh been married to my wife for 20 two years been on apartment 23 married 22 and um other than that my hobbies i'm really big into aquarium so um if i'm not dealing with family i'm dealing with my aquarium or having fun with that so other than that i think it's yard work and regular regular other stuff so well i, I still have two young ones so um my hobbies have become their hobbies <laughs> and so uh i think now with having kind of the same thing with sergeant greer uh, my, my son is also at home uh, learning so i have become a fifth grader once again and um, i've taken on the task of, of becoming a homeschooling mom on top of being a career mother uh, and also have a three-year-old and um you know with him learning uh his fundamentals as well so uh, I, I have really stepped into the role of being teacher slash mom, uh, so it doesn't leave a lot of room for a lot of the other things that I do uh, uh, that I really enjoy doing. I was a dancer for 15 years, um, and so, but COVID has kind of killed a lot of the dance classes and um, a, lo a lot of those um, those uh, fitness, group fitness classes and things like that. So. Um, I've just been learning ways to incorporate my family into the things that were once my hobby, of course, for them, it's like, ah, oh, she's dragging us to another workout. But, you know, it's, uh, it has become, for me, I have become a lot more family oriented as a result, um, because you kind of are forced to, and I don't regret it at all. Yeah. How, um, both of you, uh, from, if I'm doing my math right, both of you were uh, officers first and then parents after afterwards how did uh how did becoming a parent um change your uh or did it change did it change the way that you approach your work uh i would say absolutely for me uh when i became a parent i was already working along the realm of um i was working with children crimes against children and so uh i think for me with working in the profession and being the voice for children and having children, it made me a more conscious parent. Um, and so sometimes maybe overly conscious of some of the things, but I see the worst of the worst. So um, it was, it almost made me, I had to watch it because I became almost paranoid 
uh, and sending my child to school uh, for the first time uh, with seeing some of the things that went on. And it was normally the people who were the caretakers who were the ones who were offending on them. And so it made it very um, challenging for me as a parent to be able to understand uh, not everyone is bad and just allowing my children to be children uh, that uh, I think those were the things that really um, changed me a lot. Uh, I didn't think that I would be as overly protective as I am, but um, I think the hardest part for me now <clears throat> is being able to allow my children in this society and in this world and what we're living in, allowing them to be children. So it's been a challenge for me and a balance that I have had to learn with working crimes against children and allowing my children to be children. Yeah, I think that just piggyback, I think that's the same same boat that it's I mean you see so much and sometimes I'll of course my daughter now she's a thinks she's a, an adult when you know on paper I guess she is at eighteen, but you know, you tell them some some things and they don't understand, but because you've seen so much and you know hey, I know you see the world that you see, but behind that world it's another world. And um, you know, you we become exposed to that other world that's you know that a lot of people don't just don't see but it's out there but and so but yeah giving them that rain to hey okay we'll go ahead and go or you know live you know live your life as, as full as you can without having to worry about that so. thank you for sharing uh, a bit about your families and um, your role as uh, as parents as well so uh, I know that's precious information and I'm, I'm grateful for that for hearing about that what uh, what have you learned uh, about Dallas in particular specifically through your work as a Dallas police officer I do what I was born and raised here in Dallas uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the movie, The Matrix, you know, you take the red pill or the blue pill, you take the red pill, you're still just living in the regular life where everything's fine. But you take the blue pill, you're gonna see the things that are behind the real world. And that's the part that opened my eyes. And hey, you know, it's another world out there and it's not so much, you know, the friendly and nice sunny day that you see uh, here. Um, i tell you what a really good example would be for before police, my police world, a beautiful, sunny, warm day, perfect weather. I would think, man, this is a fantastic day. But now my police world, when I go to work, beautiful, sunny, warm weather, perfect weather day for police, you're gonna be busy, busy, busy with calls. Uh, people are getting, because it's so warm and people are out and people are doing things that they shouldn't do. Uh, so that's just an example. Mm. So it changed change the, you know, the weather can, you know, it's uh, your perception of the weather has changed because of the work that you do. Something is funny. That's right. I mean, the, the, yeah. For the weather outside today, um, it's going to not be a whole lot of calls holding and um, people for the most part are going to behave for whatever reason, just because of the cold and just want to bundle up and uh, kind of sit still. So. Yeah. You may have domestic calls today because people are stuck in, in the house with each other. So yeah. <laughs> that's what we okay. kind of see uh, on bad weather days. We see more domestic calls. Uh, but just like Sergeant Greer, I'm from here as well. Um, and so my parents were really active in our community growing up. 
and uh, my father was was very active in you know dealing with some of the community politics not necessarily the city politics but uh, the politics in in our community um, so I, I did grow up seeing the inner workings sometimes of how things work and how our community interacts with the police department uh, that has since changed but uh, growing up, my parents did, they were very active with the police department and, and with city council and some helping some of the new people who are involved in city council. I mean, the old, they're now old people, but uh, they were new at the time, um, become involved in city council. But um, it has changed for me because just like Sergeant Greer said, uh, you see some of the inner workings as a police officer. You see the inner workings of uh, how the city politics are, are operated. Um, and, and you see, you learn things about other communities that you didn't necessarily live in or grow up in. Um, and you see the, the different, um, the, the different mentalities of different communities and how they view policing. Um, I was fortunate enough growing up to see both sides of that, how, how to interact. My father worked in lower income communities and worked with children uh, in the Boy Scouts of America in lower income communities. So I got to see a lot of that as well as where he would get his donations for the Boy Scouts of America from the upper class community. So I also saw how he interacted with individuals in the upper class community. So, um, but seeing that large disparity between the two classes, the socioeconomic classes, I, um, it, it taught me a lot about compassion. Uh, it taught me a lot about dealing with people on a personal level and taking the socioeconomic status out of it. And then I learned, that's how I learned to interact with people in general. You said something just now, uh, uh, Sergeant Montgomery Criddle, that uh, your parents um, uh, uh, were dealt with the community and, and were um, uh, helped to, with the interactions between the police and the community. And then you said some of that has changed now. Um, in what ways has that changed the way the police and, and the community uh, interact with each other? I think where there was a level of respect, uh, and not saying that it has changed dramatically, but it has changed where I think that where the level of respect for authority um, was there before, it, it, it has changed the way it looks now. So um, there's... I think some people feel that there is a, a level of respect for authority that they no longer have to have. Um, but I feel like the, I feel like respect for authority is taught uh, from you, you, you instill that in your children as parents, you teach them they, that you are the authoritative figure, uh, the first authoritative figure that they have to adhere to. Um, and that just resonates into adulthood and into the community. I don't see that as often. Um, in some communities, and I think some of that has to do with disparage of uh, the, the police interaction with the particular community. But the flip side to that is that sometimes people tend to adopt other people's um, experiences and not necessarily their own. And so that causes them to have, to, they, they just adopt a certain type of um, a viewpoint of policing that's not necessarily true for themselves but they adopt that and they take that on and then it causes it causes unnecessary conflict between the two mm. Mm. well this is um, a question that i've asked almost all of our guests um and uh i'm 
I've been eager to ask you all as well. You know, I mentioned that session statement a, a little while ago that we made back in um, July. It was all of, all of that was compelled by um, uh, the uh, the death of George Floyd and um, all, all our experience. Really, I mean, uh, watching that video. What as as officers, um, what was your experience? Um, if you did watch uh, that video, what was your experience and how did you perceive it in ways that might have been different um, from, uh, from people who aren't officers? And then like, how did you perceive it in ways that were probably just, just like the rest of us? It's for me, it's kind of, uh, you know, of course it certainly happened and you certainly sit there and watch the video and I've watched it numerous times being, you know, training at the academy. But, um, you know, you kind of watch it in disbelief. Um, you know, the, can you not see that the, the person is not breathing? The person was moving, now they're not moving. Can you not hear people telling you, look, the person's not moving? Can you not hear people telling you that, hey, he's not breathing? Uh, those are the things that struck me the most as, as uh, being a police officer. Mm. Um, of course, if I try to put on my citizen, never been a police officer had, if I try to do that, um, then you have the idea that, hey, I can't believe this officer would do something like that. And, and you know, for the, I guess, for the, from the citizen standpoint, it would kind of move you into the way of thinking, well, if this is going on right here, all those stories have to be true, that this is something that's not mm -hmm. uncommon. Uh, but, I mean, it, but the reality of it, and I put my law enforcement hat back on, although those incidents do happen, it, 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 it's not commonplace. Um, but, you know, if you have the one, two, 10, 100 videos of, of bad behavior from officers and you hold that against the, the millions of interactions that they have each day across the United States, um, it, the, the, the percentage is minuscule. So um, mm. I kind of look at it, you know, two views with the, the two different hats on. Mm. I know for me, I haven't met an officer yet, regardless of race, that thought that that was the right thing to do. Um, and I, I think that uh, in the haste of everything, I'm not sure that officer was thinking either. And so um, sometimes what has a tendency to happen is what we call in, in police work is what's called the OODA loop. And they call that, um, it's kind of like you kind of get lost in what's going on. You no longer start paying attention, you get tunnel vision. And so um, I, I kind of think not knowing, and I'm not saying this is exactly how this officer was thinking, but I do know that sometimes in high stress situations uh, where you have, high, you have a lot of crowd around you and things like that, um, you start to, uh, some of your senses start to go. And, um, but as a result, the other officers who are around you should also, uh, if they still have their capacities, step in. And that's what did not happen in this case. And I think that's where uh, a lot of people were really upset because there were so many officers on the scene and no one stopped, even though they heard him say he couldn't breathe. No one took it upon themselves to tell the officer, hey, take a time out, take a breather, get up, walk around, uh, step away from this for just a moment. We have them. Uh, I think that that's where the issue really came in for more individuals. And then like Sergeant Greer said, once he stopped breathing, 
no one took any type of uh, measures to resuscitate. Uh, even though we are police officers, if we know that we have someone who's there, we at least learn CPR. And so uh, at that point, you do whatever measures you can to try to resuscitate that individual until you can get the paramedics. Looking from the standpoint of an officer, knowing how I respond to situations, I just, I mean, it, it, it really touched me really deeply because as professionals, um, we're held to a higher standard. And I, me being the communicator that I am, I just didn't feel like it took all of that for the arrest. I mean, it's, it, everything to me was excessive from the point of, you know, the, the once he was detained, uh, the kneeling down and all of that. If we're police officers, we, we're supposed to bring some level of peace. We're, we're peace officers, rather, also. Um, we should be able to bring some level of peace, peace to the situation, you know, when we show up. So seeing that the totality of the circumstances to me didn't warrant all of that. It really didn't. And especially, you know, the man losing his life behind it, the knee on the neck and all that, that just tactically was all wrong. So it, it hurt me deeply because what he did put a stain on my job, my badge, um, how I do my job, regardless of, of, of how good of a person I feel like I am as an officer, seeing that, you know, it just lets me know, you know, um, how much of an impact or how important it is for us to value life, but to do our jobs and to, to, to look at it from the perspective that what you do wrong can 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 affect the whole nation. I mean, look at the riots and all that stuff happening. So he he had at the as an officer had an opportunity to make that arrest, you know, do whatever he had to do and not go through all of this. For whatever reason that he did, he caused a whole lot of, of, of shame on the departments of police officers across the nation. Um, it caused a lot of, of, of ill feelings in people. It, it just drew a bunch of negativity to society. Just because we can't communicate as an officer, we cannot find it in us so that we can communicate on a level where it, it didn't take all of that. You know, you, we, we should be able to figure this out without having to drag this man through that. And I mean, just looking at the video, I, I have so many emotions from it and, and, and trying to explain it, it, it would take a you know, a few hours and a cup of coffee or something just to sit down. But that's from the law enforcement because I know how I do my job. You know, personally, um, I'm an African-American male, so um, I'm not exempt from being in that situation if I'm plain clothes. So if I'm at a, you know, uh, somewhere where an officer stops me, no matter how well I speak or whatever, um, I can, I feel as though I can end up in that situation because I'm from Louisiana. I know uh, Jessica and, and uh, Greer are from Dallas, from Texas, but I'm from Louisiana. So I, I live by a different creed when it comes down to, you know, um, or I think in a different fashion because I'm from the South and I've seen stuff coming up. So down there, you know, I can be just like Floyd in a situation like that. So with that being said, um, you know, it, it just puts it more personal because, I mean, I'm actually, you know, living in the skin 
and I'm not exempt from, you know, that happening. There is, um, there's this assumption that, I mean, I've got an admission to make to all, <laughs> make to you all, um, you know, there's this underlying assumption that I didn't really realize I was bringing to this conversation until I started preparing some of my, my notes and, and um, prompts and that, that underlying assumption was that you know, there has to be a difference between how black and white officers have experienced this year that they've had to experience it completely different and had different perceptions about it. And um, so I need to acknowledge that assumption, first of all, and say that uh, I just made that assumption without talking to anybody or asking anybody. Um, with that said, was I wrong about that or was I right? Um, that dependent on your, the color of your skin as an officer, you experienced this year, 2020, the pressures that have come with it very differently. I will say I've had some of my <clears throat> some of my Caucasian and Hispanic officers um, actually apologize to me, and in doing that, um, I think there is a ownership of guilt that they have taken on, uh, not necessarily being something that they have done or wrong that they've done to me at all. Um, but I allowed that to be an opportunity for conversation and not one for shawning, not one for ridicule or not one for saying anything um, to them to make them feel as if they had wronged me personally. Now, I don't know what they've done in their personal lives, but me personally, they have wronged me. Uh, so I left that as an open door for opportunity to let them know um, uh, about just what's really going on uh, in my world as an African-American woman and um, and just let them know that, hey, it's an open door policy with me uh, about having conversations and having the hard conversations. Uh, I think that's where, uh, I think for them, that's where a lot of it became very complicated because they were afraid to have, to ask the questions of things that they've always wanted to know, uh, but weren't, um, they didn't have the courage to ask. And so um, has it been different? Yes, it has been different for me. And then the flip side to that with being an African-American officer, you also get called names because now you're considered the oppressor. So people think that you're on the other side and um, to, to have that balance of understanding who you are versus how you police and how you do your job, uh, you have to be able to make um, those distinctions in your community as well and let it be known that you are not um, any different uh, the individuals that you are um, you're working with or the individuals that you're policing. Uh, it's just a matter of choice. I chose differently. I chose to live life differently. I chose to make different decisions. It doesn't make me better than. It doesn't make me lesser than. Um, it, it does not make me uh, an oppressor. It does not make me any of those things. It makes me someone who's upholding the law. Uh, and it, it also makes me someone, like I said, who has made different choices than, than the individuals who choose to uh, do the wrong thing. And so I, but I have seen, yes, I have seen other officers, uh, non-Black officers, say that they feel like they have to police differently at this point. And I don't know if it's a matter of they have to police differently. I think that there's just a matter of there just has to be a conversation of, um, culturally how things are different 
and and how some things are uh, seen and the optics of some things in the eyes of African-Americans and African-American police officers um, as opposed to non-African-American police officers. Uh, Sergeant Greer, uh, Corporal Scott, either one of you want to take that question on? Um, I would, I would say that, um, um, like, like Jessica, I've had some conversations with, uh, coworkers and this past year, it, it has been very challenging to, to be African-American and to come do this job, uh, with coworkers that have, um, the ones that I work, cause we work in different units. I'm in traffic. So, um, that have distinctively different um, ad, not said attitudes or insights or responses to what's going on. And the bottom line is the law is the law when, when it comes down to, you know, how we, 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 had, we are law enforcement, so we enforce the law, but with all of the, the, the tension behind what's going on in the world, I found that African-Americans are, and the way that they approach it is this, I, I'm gonna I'm speak for me. Here I am, an African-American male uh, officer uh, at a protest, all of these demonstrations that we've done doing my job, but I'm doing it with the sensitivity that I literally understand what the, the anger is. You know, I'm not for the, the violence and the, you know, criminal mischief and the breaking of property and all that stuff. I, I get that. I understand the frustration. Therefore, when I'm doing my job, I'm able to kind of look over that and go deeper into how do I resolve the conflict? How do I try to make the situation better and keep it calm? Where my coworkers, Caucasian uh, mostly, their attitude is, we got to get tougher. They're breaking bottles. They're breaking. They're doing this. You know, we just running around looting. So you gotta, you gotta show them who's in charge, and that's not the answer. That's not the answer because that's what we're, that's what got us here now. I mean, just the ability for officers. A lot of us not being able to take a situation and back up. We're all we taught is just to go forward. You can't back up. No, you can. If it's going to resolve conflict, this is going to get the situation done, you can take a, a, a step back in the approach. Now, not in all situations, of course, we know that. But in a lot of situations that I've dealt with, and I've been on for 25 years, so, and I was in patrol and all that, I've come across some heated situations, but most of the time we can get it done. But the difference is they don't see it that way. So the discussions that we've had have gotten pretty heated. They have been very heated discussions, but when I say heated, heated to the fact of, for me, trying to get them to understand uh, my perspective. But for them, the heated is, oh, it's you against me, black against white. No, I'm trying to get you to understand. So the question that was around, uh, that came to me from a white supervisor was, how did I feel about the George Floyd and why, why did I feel about the George Floyd? So, and I told him, I said, he said, do you think we should, I mean, 
don't you think this is a little excessive with all of the stuff that's, that's going on? And he said, because I just feel like everybody's just bashing police officers. And it's like, if you're in uniform, you get badged. You, you just get bashed because you, you're in uniform. He says, I don't, I don't like that. He says, I've been on this job for years and he has been on for a while. And he said, I just feel like you guys, it feels like because of George Floyd, everybody's saying all police officers bad. What do you think about that? And I said, well, Sarge, um, basically what you're saying is you're uncomfortable with the fact that people looked at this incident and, and they maybe called it racist or whatever, but they just blanketed every law enforcement officer as bad. So you, you just, they just stereotype. And he said, well, yeah. I said, well, look at this. I said, you just did that since the George Floyd. That's only been a couple of months and you've been uncomfortable. I've been uncomfortable all of my life because you can change your uniform and go put on a t-shirt and jeans and you're okay. I said, but I can't change my skin. So the perception is me being an African-American, I get treated like this all my life for 51 years. But you're saying you're uncomfortable. So he looked, he was like, huh, I really didn't, didn't look at it. I said, well, that's, that's how it is. You've, you've, you know, looked at it as you just categorized it and said that all, no, it's this situation that has been happening for years that has blown up now in society and people are tired and they're frustrated with the fact that these talks that we're supposed to be having, you know, to get things done, nothing has been done and we're seeing things repeated time after time and time again. So that's where the frustration comes from. But, and I know I'm a little long-winded, but here's one thing I do want to say. I do know that a person, their makeup, how they were raised, um, their background, that has a major influence on how we do our jobs. And I think once you go to the academy and get the power of having the badge and all that, however you were before you became an officer to deal with these situations, it's just, if you, if you were a good person in general, then you're going to be a good person in general when you do your job. If you was a bad person uh, in general and you had some hidden things, whatever, those things are going to be exposed even more as an officer because now you have the ability to take people's rights away to a certain extent. So I see that happening a lot. Underlining a lot of this stuff that has happened across the country, these officers that are doing it, that that's a personal thing that they have that they're hiding under their the code or the, the they're covering up with their badge and their gun so it acts out into a shooting of an unarmed black man but it's very ironic that that scenario with the unarmed black man thing that is just the most the number one cause i mean and it just to me underlining that they do not understand or they they don't want to understand what's going on and try to adjust. There are no, there are no adjustments to it, to um, their thinking. It's just one track thinking because the guys that I actually talked to and we had the discussion, a lot of these shooters that are very, very questionable and raise a lot of questions, they have no problem with it. They say, hey, that's a good shooting. They have no problem saying it's a good shooting, but they have a problem when I bring the question that how could we have saved this man's life? Could we have done this at this particular moment to have saved this man's life to keep us from having to shoot or whatever? And I, I don't know if Jessica, 
a grill would agree with this, but I, I give this scenario a lot. I can talk my way into some fights. I can talk my way into a shooting. If I'm on a, on a call or on something and talk to somebody the wrong way in authority and that person is bigger than me, I can push their buttons enough to get them to respond to me to where I can hide behind the code of, hey, tactically, I feared for my life and did what. To me, that's the way I look at it. If you push the right, if you're there to help, then help at all costs. If you're there to save lives, in the heat of the moment, I understand when people blazing guns and blaze, all that. I'm talking about these situations, 90% of them, where you come up on and you got uh, something calm that ends up in a death, a traffic stop, something minor, a traffic stop, the lowest form of an offense that ends up in a death behind a shooting or something like that. So um, I don't even know where I was going with this because I kind of strayed off. But the bottom line is I really think that, um, you know, from my perspective, that it's a lot of having to do with a person's individual uh, ability to adjust their thinking to help in society. I, I, I go from a spiritual background. I, I, I look at it as I don't categorize it. I, I just say, you know how they say, back from where I'm from, don't let the devil use you. I think the, the, the evil spirit moves in host and people. And it's just not a white or black thing. It's just the fact that evil, if you allow it to get in, in, into you to do things like that, if you don't control it, then it, it'll get the best of you to where you're making decisions that, um, you know, that affects the whole world. I always say we take imperfect individuals and make them police officers. Yeah. Um, so when you do that and you uphold them to a different standard, sometimes that, that standard can't be met because those individuals, their imperfections uh, supersede, um, you know, their, their ability to want to do what's right. And let's face it, some, it's in every profession. Some people, you have those bad people that sometimes just slip through and they, and they slip through the cracks and they make it in. Uh, it's just very, um, it can be amplified a lot in policing, especially now with cameras and, and everything that's going on. It's, it, it can be very amplified. So um, I, I think, like Sergeant Greer said earlier, you know, it's a small percentage of individuals uh, involved in policing that make that bad name for us. And, and I think it's uh, that I call them the 1%, that 1% always gets highlight, the highlighted um, viewpoints from the, the news stories because it's a good story. It's gossipy. It's, you know, it, it makes for headlines. And so those are the things that people want to see. Nobody wants to see when the officer goes out and buys someone lunch. Nobody wants to see when the officer saves someone. Um, you know, it, it's just, I, I make it a point when I'm in uniform, sometimes if someone buys my lunch, I make it a point to buy the person's lunch behind me. And then I just tell that individual mm -hmm. to pay it forward. Uh, it's a small gesture on both sides, but I, I do that intentionally to let people know that I do appreciate you as well as you appreciate me, and we're in this together. Yeah. Um. So I'm um I'm curious. I, I um I have found that uh, this year has been especially difficult. It's been a hard year to be. Uh, to be black 
in a position of authority when everybody is talking about racial division and questioning and interrogating and asking and you know and arguing and um putting a whole lot of energy and attention right there as it should be um but nonetheless it is um it's still it's tough to be um uh, to to be a healer and a peacemaker or as uh uh Corporal Scott said, you, you all are peace officers, um, but you nonetheless are coming into a conflict that often is heated, amped up by racial difference or perceived racial difference. Um, how have you uh, personally um, taken, how have you taken care of yourselves through this year? What do you do to, uh, to sustain the energy and um, hopefulness necessary to be in a position of authority at a time and to be black in a position of authority um, at a time when everybody is uh, focused on, uh, on on race. I don't know about the other uh, officers being for me it's it's easy. We, I just have this mindset that hey you got to mash on and, and I don't care what comes before you or what kind of weight you have and, and weight may get heavy, but you gotta, you gotta continue on. I mean, uh, for, for, for me, my family depends on me and as well as I depend on them. But, um, that idea of, 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 of slowing down because all of a sudden what you always knew, what you always knew, cause I mean, this year is, uh, it's, it's not any thing that came, Oh, I didn't know this was in existence. Mm -hmm. um, it's just at the forefront, but now, but the, but, but still with the idea that, Hey, what you always knew, Hey, it's really there. That's no excuse to slow down or continue to do the, the good job that the vast majority of officers are doing. So, um, I've taken this year just as I did last year and the year before and the year before that, um, do the absolute best that you can and, and, um, and, um, mash on. So that's the way I look right. at it. Well, I, I agree, uh, Sarge. It, it, it's easy. I mean, I, I'm not gonna lie. This is how I deal with it. This is how I've dealt with it all my life, on, on my whole career. First, I'm I'm a man of God, so my spirit man is always on point. I have to always be on point with that because I have a family, and uh, I love my family. I, they, I, I, you don't know, but um, wife, 26 years, and I have four kids, so. I'm busy. I'm very busy. So I can't allow, you know, what's going on in the world to, to disrupt, you know, my, my family, my lifestyle and all of that based on the fact that it's my job that I have to do. So I'm going to have to be in, the, in my right state of mind to do it. So actually police work is something I do to pay the bills. My main objective is, you know, serving God and taking care of my family. So when I look at it from there, this job doesn't consume me. When I get to work, having, you know, prayed with my family, gone to church, um, you know, vacations, activities, spending that quality time, that, that's my nurturing. When I get on the job, then I flip that into what's going on in the world. I bring quality to the job. I, th that's my plan. My, my passion is to bring quality. So all of the stuff that they see as people say, um, you know, officers like putting us in a, in a box and saying we're all like this or whatever, then I let my work speak for me. 
So when I'm on the streets, it's, I basically give them the opposite of what they expect. So me being in traffic, how I handle my, oh, I'm, I'm going to do the job, and I'm, but I'm going to give them quality and professionalism. And at the same time, what it does is it humbles me to not overreact to stuff. Um, I'm very much aware of what's going on around the, the world as far as law enforcement and for how dangerous it is and all that. But I have to stay prayed up because I can't walk on this job stressed out. I ride a motorcycle on top of it. So that adds to the, the dangers that it involves. So that's one of the, the things that you learn in the motorcycle class. If you have stuff on your head that you're thinking about this, that's, you know, bothering you, don't get on that bike. You know, you can't ride under stress. So I can't do my job under stress as well. So I can stay humble in, in the spirit of God, which humbles me. So anything I'm dealing with, and it's sad to say that the citizens and, and, and the, the negativity that we get a lot from the citizens based on what they see on TV and all that, that's just a portion of what we go through. We, we, we have workplace violence as well. I mean, we have stuff going on on the department amongst coworkers and supervisors and things that adds another level of stress. So I have to constantly check myself and check my spirit to, so that I can be able to handle it. I won't overreact, won't, won't blow a fuse, so to speak. And that keeps me grounded. When I, walk, when I come to work, I always say uh, I, I walk to work and I run home. You know, I do my eight hours. I, I walk to work, get to work humble, and, and I run home because at the end of my shift, I know that I gave my quality time to the citizens. And, 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 and just like Sergeant Criddle said about how she does, throughout the day, just as God gives us grace and mercy, I give it out because what you give out comes back to you. Throughout the day, no, I can write ticket after ticket after ticket. I can enforce the law and just be by the book. But I look at the totality of the circumstances that's going on in the world. I look at the state of the economy and all of that. And I do my job, but I'm more fair. And what citizens and people realize when, when, when I do that and be the officer, because sometimes it's, it's tough love. Sometimes I do. I issue those two citations. When I know, hey, I don't have a job, I understand that. But you're reckless on what you're doing. You know, 70 in the a, in a, in a school zone is not acceptable. So we're going to have to deal with this. So that type of thing. But for the most part, because I stay humble in the word and I have other activities and hobbies that, that allow me to detox from the stress of the job, that eight hours I have on the job, is quality they're, they're quality hours mm. and it's yeah. it is the best of the best let me um i want to turn real quickly and this is a at the at the urging of a, one of our participants who i think uh is on to something here how did uh how did the uh 2016 shooting of uh dallas police officers the ambush how did that um impact the way that um the city police during um, the protests and uh, the um, spell of um, of uh, criminal mischief, um, breaking of windows, and um, that was happening downtown—a really heated heated weekend after Memorial Day. I think that's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure that 2016 had a lot of impact on how we. Uh, I think it changed. 2016 changed us completely. 
It changed us as individuals. It changed us as a department. It changed us as a city. And I think that um, just moving forward, a lot of the things that we have implemented as a result of what happened in 2016, uh, I, I will say for, for the most part, for with my experience with the Dallas Police Department, um, we didn't necessarily um, change who we were as a department because we've, for the most part, most officers have tried to be fair. They've tried to um, police in a, 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 a kind of gentle fashion, uh, in my opinion. That's been my experience in the officers that I've worked with. Uh, Maybe be different for uh, Senior Corporal Scott and Sergeant Greer. But um, I think that 2016, though, did make us a bit more vigilant about uh, the fact that we could be in the middle of something peaceful and there are individuals who want to hurt us, which when we signed on to the job, we understood that that was always um, a possibility. I, I think when we, when we correlate the two with what happened in 2016 versus what was going on with the, um, the rioting and everything that's happened, um, there was a continued level of compassion, I think, that happened from 2016 on to now, which was part of the reason why I think we didn't get as many disruptive protests as some other cities did. And I think as I always like to tease and say that our protesters are fair weather protesters anyway. So if we have bad weather, we rarely, you know, most of the time protests don't happen. Um, but I, I think that when it came to when it came to how we interacted with the general public versus how the public received uh, what was going on, they just wanted to be heard. And so we get that. Uh, we get that they want to be heard. And once they heard, once they are heard, most of the time people just go home. Uh, a lot of what was happening as far as the rioting and the things that were being uh, destroyed, they were from people from out of town. Uh, and those individuals probably about 90% of those individuals were from out of town, the ones that were caught. And so we understand that that is one of the things that comes along with protests. We understand from intelligence that uh, a lot of these people are paid to come and, and cause destruction and wreak havoc and, you know, um, tear up the cities that they live in. So with that, with understanding that, uh, it allows us to police in a fashion that, um, when we move forward, we understand that the citizens of Dallas want the same thing we want. And really that is uh, someone to listen. You want peace of mind. You want to be able to trust. Um, you, you want people to be um, uh, very understanding of what's going on and, and understand both sides. And so that's what we get majority from the actual citizens of Dallas. And, but we also understand that there is a portion that comes in with the with the protests, we understand a portion of that are paid individuals. So, you know, you, you treat it as it is. Yeah, I, I agree uh, with that because um, I was down there for the for the shootings. And um, one thing for sure, it did change us because we've always say nothing is routine and what we do in our job or whatever, but what, the word ambush is is real. No matter how good of a day that you're having, any officer that's on now and living in this day and time 
should definitely know that just by being in the public in uniform, you are a target. We've always said that we are targets and that type of thing, but even more so now because you don't have to be on a call. You don't have to be doing anything but just sitting in your squad car like I'm doing. And someone could just, out of hatred or out of anger of something that happened somewhere else, will take a shot at you, you know, or want to hurt you or, or that type of thing. So it causes us to actually check ourselves, our surroundings, and be more aware. But it's also what it has done, too, is allowed a lot of officers to critique themselves and, and second guess or, or approach a situation differently, where, you know, years ago, you could handle a situation this way. Well, now, hey, you know what? I need to pick my battles, you know. Um, maybe maybe I'll, 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 I'll let that, let, let them make it on this. Or I may mention something, I won't push the issue. Because if you do, it doesn't take but a second for you to be plastered on CNN or anything based on, you know, the wrong response. So now you have to make sure you're making the right response because, um, you know, you can be a nobody one day and, a, you know, a few seconds later something happened and you make one wrong decision. Not only are you plastered on CNN across the world, but now you've sparked a whole new set of riots. So you have to be real careful. So that that's caused a lot of officers to have to, you know, pay attention to what they're doing. But underlining in Dallas, I did, I do notice in, in, in Dallas, as opposed to the, some of the other cities, the rioting and everything, if you watch like Detroit in those places, it looks like war. It, uh, the, the riot gear, and, and, and I, I imagine some of the numbers may warrant, you know, a lot of show of force. But even here with all of those riots, to me, it still was calm. We had response team respond to things, but like Sergeant Krill said, a lot of these people were, were even from here. So if your intelligence is doing the right job and, and finding out the makeup of the crowd and that type of thing, then you don't over respond. Because if we had gone out and done even more with all of the breaking, this property, the insurance is going to cover it. I'm, it, it. You look at it like that. But if you go through there and sweep downtown and start beating people and, and, and bullying your way, our city would look like those other cities. But we still are allowing people to go down to City Hall, get permits to do their protests in the street, peaceful protests, um, you know, uh, freedom of speech. We still have our liaisons out there walking with these people in group, allowing them to express themselves like, you know, the Constitution will allow you to do. And that's a really a good thing. And fortunately, even though we had a lot of property damage and all that, fortunately, our city still, to me, looks good as far as how we handle it. And, and, and not a lot of the officers, a majority of police officers, are the good guys just trying to maintain order. You know, like I said, just a handful that makes it look worse are out there, but it changed, you know, the way that we, we do it um, a little bit. But for the most part, we, we still have it under control to where the city is managed. I mean, we, we are managing the city's crime and all, um, I think, very well. We I think had, what um, a lot of people don't realize, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I was about to say, I think what a lot of people don't realize is that probably for three months straight, there was a protest every day. 
And so uh, it, I think it was very well managed uh, and the citizens didn't have to be subject to an immense amount of crime uh, as a result, because like uh, Corporal Scott was saying, they were allowed the opportunity to voice whatever their issue was. So it worked, it worked out well, uh, because those individuals were allowed to do so. So uh, a lot of those things didn't get a lot of television um, publicity. And we do that purposefully. We allow the people to speak, but we've also learned that the less publicity you give them, uh, the less important they feel. So as a result, if they don't feel as important, then it's usually less crime also. We had a, um, believe I, I just skimmed the paper this morning on my, on my way in uh, as I was getting out of the house, but um, I think I saw last night that uh, one individual was shot um, by a uh, protester uh, last night in, I think it was Washington, uh, Seattle, and uh, the fight broke out, uh, multiple fights in Washington, D.C. Um, and uh, so I, I'm curious, and I'm, all this is happening in the midst of this, um, at the end of this heated uh, uh, election that we've just gone through and um, persistent questions about um, the fairness of the elections, although it appears that um, there's been no substantiated or widespread uh, reason to believe like uh, that the, um, the results weren't what they, what they were. Uh, but with all that said, how do you, this, this you know, the, the potential for um, violence seems so much like real, you know, now than it has at any time that at least I've been alive. Um, potential for violence between um, not just people with different political views, but even um, uh, people with uh, uh, that are uh, that perceive racial differences, right? Um, and the, you know, there are definitely far right groups that have been uh, carrying long guns um, in and around uh, our cities. And um, uh, what's the? How do we understand that here in Dallas? How do you all? Uh, prepare for that? Are you preparing for it? Is that something that's a persistent like question that you're asking? Um, but that that uh, that we call it assess and address. Um, after seven seven, the the July uh, shootings downtown. The I was at the academy and involved in training uh, back then, and it 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 was a huge pause in the way we trained and. Uh, the command staff came to the academy, uh, specifically our group, and hey, what do we need to do to be prepared for this and moving forward? And so we created different scenarios and we had to re-gear because even though, uh, I think everybody hit on it, even though you signed up for the duty and you knew it could happen and you've seen it happen, but you've never experienced it happening right here, right now. And that's what happened. That's what occurred. So. Um, as far as the preparation, um, it's ongoing. It's always an assess and address the way the Dallas Police Department handles protest is even the, the, the most mundane protest as well as the bigger protest that may involve a whole day, the ones that just last a few hours. It's always that assessment that, that hey, what's the potential for violence? And if it does occur, what's, what are we going to do first to take care of it? What resources do we have in place to to, to bring a peaceful resolution to it. So um, I think but that July 7th put us in gear for those uh, events moving forward. And, and even throughout the whole three months of solid days of protesting, 
Uh, it was always the idea, if this happens, what happens if another group comes? This group is peaceful. Uh, our intelligence tells, tells us it's nothing to it, but what happens if another group comes? What's, what's the plan? So, um, uh, I think moving forward for our department, that's always going to be fresh on our minds, and I don't see us waning uh, for, for, for lack of training because of that. Yeah, we have to continue to uh, be innovative in our thinking uh, because I, I think what has happened is that, like you said, 7-7 has taught us a lot about how you can be in the midst of something that you perceive as being peaceful, and then all of a sudden it just goes uh, extremely chaotic in a matter of seconds. So we are, uh, I think, with um, with the change and with the more pro with more protests and things like that happening, we have to be aware that there is an evolution to protesting as well. And so as it evolves, we have to evolve in policing. We have to understand that we can't do things the same. We have to be um, uh, more vigilant. We have to be more aware of what's going on around us. We have to have counter uh, surveillance uh, to the protests that are going on. We can't have all boots on the ground. It has to be some eyes in the sky as well. So we have to learn how to do things differently uh, and try to stay three steps ahead of what's the potential that could happen uh, as a result of the things that we've seen across the country, as well as learning about different technological things that uh, these protesters have access to. So, you know, yes, is there a possibility that one day there may be a drone that flies over and does something? Yes, we have to think about those things. Um, so uh, we just have to be aware of the potential of what could happen and just try to prepare. Now, will we be on top of all of it? Absolutely not. But it's better to be somewhat prepared than not prepared at all. And that's true. And from, from um, July 7th, uh, one thing that to me, that brought a lot of attention to how we respond to these type of um, protests is the fact that the um, the laws with the gun laws, you know, concealed and open carry. So, you know, that particular person that did the shooting, you know, capitalized on an opportunity where we all are gathered, you know, to take some officers out. Well, going forward, uh, just like Sarge said, we, we definitely are being more prepared because here we are now where folks is walking downtown with uh, rifles because they can. It's the law, you know, and, you know, we're having to critique it and understand it, but that is the new norm now. Even though, you know, we have these laws that you allow you to carry the guns and all, we have to monitor what large groups are, are, are getting here and, and, and doing things because now, you know, long rifles are, they, they cover a lot of ground. So it has to be well thought out. And because of that incident, you can rest for sure that, you know, they, we as a department here in Texas, in the state of Texas, with the laws like they are, are, are definitely, you know, that's, a, that's something that sticks out a whole lot. And because, I mean, even myself, when I think about it, uh, the first thing I did was um, went and got certified to carry AR-15 because I felt so helpless that day, you know. And I, I think about it even now, uh, I don't no longer carry it, but daily I've changed my routine on how I, I do things, you know, because I'm all over the city. So I don't have just a blank, I, I have a blanketed way I protect myself, but at the same, I'm on a motorcycle. I have to think about other dangers. So um, I do see a lot of, I would say the, the 
the race debates gone wrong. I see a lot of people more argumentative and, you know, want to express their opinion about what they think is right and wrong and, and where, you know, with the political campaign and all that. But um, yeah. I think that they've tried. A lot of people have tried and, and maybe they are working to, to come up with something to, you know, bring the Dallas to bring more attention, like some kind of a riot. I mean, uh, uh, what a, what a, not a debate, but um, protest, you know, mm. to try to bring more attention. Well, normally it goes through um, City Hall or some main forum downtown to get to publicity, but the, the department is on it to the fact that they are well aware or their intelligence is keeping us aware to be able to be proactive and, and, and at least, you know, um, you know, have a plan to address it. Just yeah. like Sarge said, what you say? Well, are you saying Sarge uh, address uh, as as a need basis or um, assess and address? Assess and address. Yeah. Well, um, uh, I, I I did not give you all a question, a option, a, or opportunity to ask me any questions. Is y'all have any questions for me uh, here at the end with like three minutes left in our time? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, if, if not, I would like to say uh, I, I appreciate you for having us on. Uh, no, and no, we allowing us to speak. Well, hold on now before before you get too far. We the the big the most important question I've got for you um, tonight is um is there anything y'all can do about the traffic cones on Hampton? You know, like south of thirty and uh, Oak Cliff. <laughs> Any chance y'all can get all those cones? <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna have hey, well, to do the street. So I drive that road all the time, and it's incredible. I mean, well, yeah. traffic cones from all the way to Loop 12 all the way up to... Uh, I know. Every day. I mean, one lane cut off. No work but I don't, I don't understand the logic of what construction... I don't know what engineer was doing it, but how do you right. make a, a three-lane road down into a one-way road, but you're only working on half, uh, uh, just 25% of the road? It's just, <laughs> And it's been that way yeah. for the last, I guess, probably... Two months. Six, well, no, yeah. it's more than I'm, that. I've been counting. Yeah, wow. probably about four months. It's right? rough. It's rough. Hampton is rough. That's all I'll say. Yeah, yeah. I, I always question. I always question where they hire these foremen from, who are supposed to be over these jobs, because yeah. <laughs> they plan and, and then they quit. Well, yeah. I um, yeah. I, I just want to say, you know, um, um, you all, you, you, you've always um been serving under pressure. You know, and then through this year as well, uh, the, 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 the pressure has been immense and all eyes have been on you. And um, for you all to just give us an hour and 15 minutes to talk about your experience um, and to talk to us, right? Um, and allow us to talk to you. Uh, that is a gift um, that uh, um, I will say on behalf of the church, um, we are grateful for. So, um, yeah. and I hope to see you soon again. Um, in the building uh, one day when uh, we're able to gather back together. Um, can I pray Can I pray for you all and pray for us before we leave? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, God of all goodness and truth, uh, God of all people, strengthen us to not give up on one another. Show us how to extend to the degree possible, the benefit of the doubt. 
protect um, our three neighbors here. Love on them, God, in the same way that they have loved on us. Yes. Keep them safe in the same way that they serve to keep us safe. And may we all find ways, new ways, to work together for the transformation of our city so that it looks more and more like the kingdom of God each day. Make our prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Bless y'all. Thank you so much. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll see you all again soon. Bless you. All right. All right. Thank, Thank you to everybody who was here with us too. Yeah. yeah.